ready to be inspired, informed, motivated, and recharged on radio's favorite power hour, Star Style, Be the Star You Are, with your hosts, Cynthia Bryan and Heather Brittany. Every day is a stellar day on Star Style, Be the Star You Are. Let's get this party started. Cynthia will be back to kick it all off after this break. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to listen and talk. You're listening to Star Style, Be the Star You Are, with hosts Cynthia Bryan and Heather Brittany. Be the Star You Are is a 501c3 nonprofit corporation to improve literacy and positive media. All contributions and donations are tax deductible. To comment on today's show, please call in toll-free at 1-866-613-1612. That's 1-866-613-1612. Or send an email to info at bethestarur.org. Now back to Star Style, Be the Star You Are, with the Oprah of the Airwaves, Cynthia Bryan. Be the star you are. Well, hello, Power Partners. Welcome to the world's most upbeat radio show, Star Style, Be the Star You Are. I am your host and your personal growth expert, Cynthia Bryan. Unfortunately, my co-host, Heather Brittany, is a bit under the weather today and doesn't have a voice, so I will be going solo with you today. Our program, we're going to take a look at the Winter Olympics, the winners, the history, and the events. Then we're going to go and talk to Marine sniper Thomas Cox about his book, The Last Wolf. And we'll end off our show today with a Zen attitude with author Stephen Asma with his no-nonsense book on Buddhism. It has red meat and whiskey in it. So turn up the volume, sit back, grab a glass of your favorite beverage, and let's just enjoy Star Style, Be the Star You Are together. The Miracle Moment is brought to you by the contributors to the new book, Be the Star You Are for Teens. You can pick up several copies and get a autograph to give to parents, teachers, and teens when you go to be the com. That's be thestarur.com. And the miracle moment is from E.E. E. Cummings, a wonderful poet. To be nobody but yourself in a world which is doing its best night and day, to make you like everybody else, means to fight the hardest battle which any human being can fight as long as you never stop fighting. Well, that kind of sums up what I believe that the Olympics are all about, about being yourself, your most unique self, your best self. Let the games begin has been a slogan we have come to recognize as the start of both the Summer and Winter Olympics. In 2010, the Olympics were held in uh, British Columbia, Vancouver, and Whistler in Canada, and it closed this year with a lot of comedy and song 
poking fun at the opening ceremony's cauldron snafu and highlighting the host nation's culture. And, of course, we all were saddened at the tragic start and and the death that happened at the beginnings of the game. But throughout the games, the Vancouver games were able to transform themselves into a very joyous affair with 82 nations competing. And the United States actually reached its Winter Olympics peak in 2010, and it put on a performance that will go down in the history books when they gave out the final medals The Americans, for the first time since the 1932 games that were held in Lake Placid, stood atop the overall medal table with 37 total. There were 216 American athletes that competed in Vancouver in 2010. A few that stole the show, you'll recognize their names, were the Alpine skiers Lindsey Vaughn, Bodie Miller, and Julia Mancuso. The short track skaters, Apollo Ono, Catherine Roeder, snowboarders, Sean White, the amazing Sean White, and Kelly Clark, figure skaters, Charlie White, Johnny Weir, Tanith Belbin, even Leah Sack, Jeremy Abbott, Rachel Flat, speed skater, Shawnee Davis, Catherine Rainey, Chad Hedrick, and biathlon, Tim Burke. There was women's ice hockey, of course, Angela Ruggiero was a favorite there. The Nordic combined with Bill DeMong and Bob Slater, Steve Holcomb with his four-man bobsled team, including Steve Mesler. There were the freestyler skiers, Ryan St. Ong and Jarrett Peterson, Casey Puckett. The skeleton, that's such a strange one. Jack Lund and curling, another strange competition with John Schuster. I really enjoyed, I think, the, the bobsled so much because it broke a 62-year 60 uh, gold medal drought when the night train, which was um, the pilot, as we know, was Hokey, Steve Holcomb, who would do the Hokey dance. He won the Olympic title this year. And, you know, it was just um, in 2008 that he thought he was going to have to quit the sport because he had a degenerative eye condition and he had to have corrective surgery that restored his vision. So what a wonderful thing to go on and to actually take the gold. Well, just a little recap of the highest awards. The United States came in with nine gold medals, 15 silvers, and four bronze, uh, 37 medals altogether. Uh, Germany had one gold, 13 silver, and seven bronze. And Canada had uh, five golds, seven silvers, and uh, five bronze with a total of 26. And then Norway was fourth, 23 medals total. So there were obviously uh, several other people, uh, several other nations that medaled, including Austria, with the Russian Federation, Korea, and all oh, the beautiful skater from Korea, China, Sweden, and France. But, you know, what really are the Winter Olympics and what's a little bit of the history? Well, as we can see, it's a multi-sport event. And as all Olympics are, they're held every four years. Now, the winter sports, they're held either on the snow or the ice, alpine skiing, cross-country skiing, figure skating, bobsledding, ice hockey. Uh, but uh, the Nordic combined ski jumping, speed skating, these have all been part of the Olympics since 1924. But other athletic events have been added as the games have progressed. Some of them, such as the luge or the short track speed skating or freestyle skating, they've now earned a permanent spot on Olympic programs. 
but they weren't always there. Now, fewer countries do participate in the Winter Olympics than in the Summer Olympics. The first Winter Olympics was held in the beautiful, beautiful um, countryside in Chamonix, France, in 1924. And before this, figure skating and ice hockey had been events at the Summer Olympics. And the games were held every four years from 1924 until 1940. And then, of course, World War II interrupted them, and the winter and summer games did not resume again until 1948. And both summer and winter were always celebrated in the same year, every four years, until 1992. And that is when they split. And the winter games were going to be held in alternate even years. So it would be summer games and then even games. And the first, so the very first winter Olympics that were held on this new schedule were actually held in Lillehammer, Norway, in 1994. And those of us who enjoyed the Olympics, I'm sure, remember that. Now, the games, especially the Winter Games, have undergone significant changes since their inception because of the rise of television as a global medium. And this really has enhanced the profile of the games. In fact, Olympic Games are some of the most watched television in history. And it's created an income stream for the International Olympic Committee through the sale of broadcast rights and advertising that has become very, very lucrative and is really used to enhance the games. And, you know, it really is a very exciting time to watch them. I think more people probably get together and stay home to watch the games for the Olympics because you can't help but root on these incredible athletes that come together to celebrate uh, the world as one world. It's, it is one of the few times that we see so much peace in our world is at the Olympic Games. Well, I have a, fun, a few fun figures and facts to share with you. The gold medals that were won by Canada in Montreal and Calgary in the two Olympic Games that they hosted prior to Vancouver was a total of zero. So we know that this year they did so much better, and, of course, they were so, so excited to bring home the gold for their ice hockey in both the women's and the men's uh, in those very, very close games that were just astounding. So that was, that was very exciting uh, for Canada. Three, uh, two times Canada has hosted Olympics prior to 2010. They hosted the 1976 Summer Games in Montreal and, of course, the 1988 Winter Games in Calgary. Now, Eric Hyden at the 1980 Winter Olympics who many consider the American um, speed skater to be one of the greatest speed skaters of all time. He actually won five gold medals, and that was Eric Hyden. And there were five members of the 2010 U.S. Olympic team that were born in Canada. So these, um, these members skied, I mean, they, they participated for the United States, but they're actually Canadian, and that was uh, Tenith Belbum, Debbie McCormick, Paul Statsny, Travis Jainer, and Allison Pottinger. So it must have been interesting for them to be Canadian and to be uh, on an American team. There were um, eight, well, actually six uh, Winter uh, Olympics won by Americans, Bonnie Blair and Apollo Ono. That is the most for any American athlete. So they won six. Olympic medals combined. 
In um, Bjorn Dowling of Norway has won 12 Winter Olympic medals, which is the most Olympic medals that a person has won from one country. Now, there were 11 consecutive gold medals won by Russian and Soviet participants in the Paris figure skating event between 1962 and 2002, and that was the longest national winning streak that any single event has ever had. So that was that's interesting for the Russians. They didn't do quite as well this year, but still, all in all, you know, uh, extremely uh, dedicated athletes and very exciting to watch. There were 20 years between medals for American uh, John Heaton, who did the skeleton, and he was uh, did the skeleton in 1928 through 1948, and then the Swiss. Um, competitor Richard Torriani, he did 1928-1948 in ice hockey, and that is the longest run, 20 years of going for medals uh, for any multi-medal athlete. Now, 26 nations won medals at the 2006 Torino Games, and that was the, the highest for any Olympic, um, Olymp- Winter Olympic, is to have 26 nations winning medals this year again it was much less with with uh, uh, united states uh, canada um dominating here the speed the alpine speed record in 1984 was set by bill johnson who he won gold and 59 nations have competed at the winter olympics without winning any medal at all so that it's sort of fun. I always remember the Jamaican bobsledders who were actually, I think they won the hearts of the world when, although they didn't win, they showed such stamina and so much incredible team spirit when they competed. Uh, let's see. Um, the most prolific Winter Olympic nation is actually Norway, and they have won a total of 280 medals. I had a very good friend uh, who was a, an Olympic medalist from Norway who was in the, uh, the long jump. And when I was in Norway visiting, it, it, and I saw it in the summer, I just couldn't believe that anybody would want to do this. It was such a frightening thing to see that this high, long jump, I don't know how many feet it actually is, but what an amazing athletic event to do that. So this year's Olympics, they ended just with a great bang, with everyone having a wonderful time, and Canada really showing how they know how to host a great, great event. Of course, it's going to be in the Russian um, nation at the next Winter Olympics and in uh, Sochi, and I'm sure that it's going to be fabulous. But we just want to applaud and commend all the athletes from around the world who competed and made this International Olympics such an incredible time. And before we go to break, I just wanted to give a couple of announcements from Be the Star You Are, and that, that is, is that the Give a Day, Get a Disney Day is coming to an end, as I had predicted, although it was originally planned to go until December of 2010. It is ending, actually, tomorrow because... There have already been almost 1 million volunteers who have donated at least eight hours to uh, giving back, which really is amazing. So 
Unfortunately for anyone who is listening, if you had planned to do this at a later time, sorry, it's too late. We don't know if Disney will do it again, but please go and volunteer at your favorite charity and think of Be the Star You Are. If you're also interested in literacy or positive media, you can go to bethestarur.org to make a donation or to get involved. So I want to thank all of those who did get involved and uh, wish everyone success in making a difference in the world. And when we return from break, we're going to journey through the eyes of a Marine Corps uh, chief scout sniper when we speak to author Thomas Cox with his book, The Last Wolf. You've been listening to Star Style, Be the Star You Are. We're going to come back in a bit. I am your host, Cynthia Bryan. Don't go away. This is a fascinating interview. Stay with us. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Apathy, violence, and negative messages are everyday occurrences in our country. You can be a change maker when you dare to care by supporting Be the Star You Are Charity, a 501c3 that empowers women, families, and youth through improved literacy, positive media, and tools for living. Visit www.bethestarur.org to find out how you can make a difference in our world. Everyone counts. That web address again is www.bethestarur.org. Be the star you are.org. Are you living your dreams? Want to create a life you love but don't know how to begin? Lifestyle coach and personal growth expert Cynthia Bryan has jump-started the lives and careers of clients for over two decades with her signature star style consultations with personalized sessions by phone or in person. You'll turn your passions into profits. Visit www.cynthiabryan.com or call 925-377-STAR. That's cynthiabryan.com or call 925-377-7827. Cynthia Bryan is your guide on the side. www.cynthiabryan.com CynthiaBryan.com. You can be the star you are. You're listening to the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. You're listening to Star Style, Be the Star You Are, with hosts Cynthia Bryan and Heather Brittany. Be the Star You Are is a 501c3 nonprofit corporation to improve literacy and positive media. All contributions and donations are tax deductible. To comment on today's show, please call in toll free at 1 866 613 1612. That's 1 866 613 1612. Or send an email to info at be the star you are.org. Now back to Star Style, Be the Star You Are, with the Oprah of the Airwaves, Cynthia Bryan. Be the star you are. Well, thank you for staying tuned to Be the Star You Are, where the world comes to talk and listen. I am your host and personal growth coach, Cynthia Bryan. And every week here on Star Style, Be the Star You Are, we bring you the outstanding authors and experts who share their lives, their wisdom, and their immense expertise. In the prologue to The Last Wolf, author Thomas Cox writes, The true test of a man is not how he performs in time of prosperity and tranquility, 
but rather how he reacts in times of suffering and strife. Well, Thomas Cox knows this adage well. For many years, he was a chief scout sniper, ending lives of the enemy in the Middle East. Today, he's a respiratory therapist, saving people's lives. His book is The Last Wolf. It chronicles and honors the warriors he served with in both the Army and the U.S. Marine Corps. Welcome, Thomas, to Be the Star You Are. Oh, Cynthia. Well, before we start talking about the book, our heartfelt congratulations to you and your wife on the birth of your first child. Thank you, Cynthia. It How was, exciting uh... you must be. You must be ecstatic. Oh, very much so. Yes, I, I, because, you know, I read in your book that you and your wife had put off having children because of the profession that you were in. Is that out of consideration, you certainly didn't want to, by being a sniper, you didn't want to leave a child fatherless. So I want to talk about your book, The Last Wolf. This is the first book I've ever written that, uh, I mean, ever read that was written by someone who actually went through all the sniper training, worked as a sniper, and it, it was so fascinating to me. You grew up in a really loud, loving Italian family who were not so thrilled when you decided to go into the military, specifically the U.S. Marines, after your uh, college graduation, what captivated you about becoming a sniper and going into the Marines? Well, Cynthia, you know, when you're growing up, uh, every really adolescent can relate to not really knowing what you want to do with your life. You know, being being a young uh, high school graduate, 18, uh, coming from a, a single family home, my mother. She really wanted me to be a college-educated uh, man and, and grow up in a traditional route. And uh, as I went to college and uh, experienced uh, a phenomenal uh, new uh, experience I never experienced before because you had all this freedom. And studying in college, uh, I realized that um, this was a new uh, journey I was going on to, but I really didn't – I really had a connection of what I wanted to do with my life. And then when I graduated in 1995 – uh, came back home to Porchester, and I remember going through uh, to the library and picking up a book that was uh, sitting there on the table. It was uh, it was called uh, Marine Sniper, uh, 93 Confirmed Kills by Charles Henderson, and just flipping through that book, just feeling a deep connection to what the author was trying to portray, and I, I finally figured out what I really wanted to do, believe it or not, and I had a taste of what I wanted to do in the military when I was in the Army National Guard, the second in the 108th Infantry Regiment in New York State Army National Guard, um, but I didn't have the full experience. I didn't, I didn't feel fulfilled yet. And then I knew that presenting this new situation to my family was going to be very, uh, very difficult because... Uh, I had to laugh, Thomas, eh, because it sounded, you know, you were writing on how you were going to present it to your family and, you know, do it so, so in, in a great way that they would accept it, and then you just blurted it out that you were leaving in the morning. It, um, they didn't take it so well. Right. They, they wanted a little bit more from me, I guess you can say. I mean, in, 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 in lack for a better term, they wanted me to, you know, they saw all these things. They wanted to uh, envision my future uh, college professor, whatever the case may be, which is nothing wrong with that. But I didn't have a connection there. I, had, I, I, I felt a resonant connection when I read the book, and I said, this is what I want to do. You know, I really, really loved it when you wrote about that, how that one book, when you went in and found it, made all the difference in your life, because I'm such a believer that, that all the information we need out there is somewhere in a book, and when we find that book, it changes our lives forever, and you have... That's exactly what happened to you. But let's talk about being a sniper, because, you know, it's not something that people... 
actually, I mean, I don't know too many young kids that think this is what I want to do is be a sniper. It was, it was the, the book is what really influenced you. And the work to get there, to become a Marine, to train for that, that was grueling. Yet the more grueling it was, the more excited you were. Exactly. Um, the book itself from, from Charles Henderson prevent, uh, presented an overview of, of what, uh, what Carl Tathcock went through. And, and when I read the book, I felt the deep connection of like this man who basically, well, all Marines work together, but uh, snipers had this role where they would, where they would stalk, they would, they would oversee an area, an objective, and just watch things occur. And it's kind of like, I guess you can equate it to like, almost like a, a, an angel looking after your men, your Marines, and making sure no one committed harm to them. And I just felt that connection with that profession. So I, I, was, I was on this quest to fulfill this, 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 this inherent desire to be a sniper. I didn't care which way it went. I don't care how hard it was going to be. That was my goal. And when I had a goal, I, I always tried to make sure that I accomplished that goal. Whether it's a short-term, medium-term, or long-term goal, that's what I wanted. And I was always fascinated with the Marine Corps. I was always fascinated with the U.S. military in general. Uh, I, I just, it, with this story in particular, it just resonated with me. And it well, hit when we think of the Marines, Thomas, I mean, they are, it is like the highest level of the military. And you had something in your book about that all Marines um, learn how to fire the rifles this is something that is inherent to the Marine Corps, which I really I didn't know that before. But to be a Marine, you really have to be a cut above. It's not for everybody. That's correct, uh, Cynthia. It's, uh, the, the boot camp is a little bit longer. I went through two of them. I went through Fort Benning. I was at 11 Bravo in the Army, and I went through uh, Fort Benning, Georgia, for, for the Army, both uh, for one summer boot camp and the other summer AIT while I was in college. And then because the Marine Corps is uh, a, a step above, I had to repeat boot camp, basically. So if you come from the Marine Corps to another branch of service, they basically waive your boot camp phase. So going from the Army to the Marine, nothing against the Army because the Army has phenomenal warriors, but I had to start boot camp all over again. So basically I went through two of them. <laughs> and, and it was a little bit more uh, different experience. Um, it, they instill it. It starts, uh, I, I, I say it in the book, how it, it basically molds the warrior through boot camp, through recruit training. You, you begin that association with that bond. With, uh, and, and you're working towards the Eagle Globe and Anchor. So when I wrote the book, I wanted to take the viewer or the reader through this stage, through this, this process of building the warrior ethos that the Marine Corps has. And it all starts with boot camp. Well, and the physical prowess, the physical condition that you have to get into is extraordinary. I mean, I was reading all the different uh, regimens that you had to go through, it didn't seem like you ever got to sleep or you were always in a state of discomfort. Uh, yet, again, for you, you thrived on this. You were always finishing at the top of, of, you know, of, of the class, so to speak. But you really, I, what I got from it is to be a Marine, you, it has to be almost in your blood. You have to want it so badly that you're willing to go through the strides to make it. Absolutely. And all Marines, um, they have that same passion. And that's what sets you apart. Absolutely. Well, we're talking to author Thomas Cox. The name of his book is The Last Wolf, and it really is his quest through being the eyes of a Marine and what it's like to be a Marine Corps Chief Scout sniper, which is what I want to get to now, because going that extra route was even 
more punishing, and you really had to work at that. You had a lot of disappointments, too, when, it, when they didn't send you right away when you wanted to be sent. You had to stay with your, um, with your team members, and, and then you finally made it. What was it like at first to go into becoming a sniper? I, again, I laughed when you found out you were going to California thinking you were going to be on the beach, and you ended up in 29 Palms in this not a very pleasant area. Uh, yes, uh, but that's part of the whole experience. If you, you know, you're here, you are this young. I was 20, uh, 23 at the time because I, uh, I graduated college, so I was a little bit older than some of the recruits. But you have this sort of naivety uh, uh, of being this young, you know, hard charger. You, you, you want to basically, you know, suck up the world. You want to, whatever it is, you have these wide eyes. You, you experience this, you're, you're ready to experience this incredible journey you're about to experience. And then I remember being back in the East Coast, and I was so sick of the New York the New York winter weather, that my recruiter kept talking about, yeah, go to California, you know, Camp Pendleton, blah, blah, blah. And then here I are, I'm coming on this bus in the middle of the night, I couldn't see anything, and then I wake up the next morning, and I'm in the Mojave Desert. I had no idea. That you weren't <laughs> even close to the ocean. Exactly. Well, my, uh, my beach didn't have any water here. Yeah, like Bandini. <laughs> exactly. But, um, yeah, uh, when I was an 0331, a machine gunner at first, uh, you had a, you basically to become a sniper, you had, it's a secondary MOS in the Marine Corps. Uh, it's 0317, it was 8541 when I was in. You have to go through this process. Basically, snipers are in the infantry battalion. So we are at heart grunts first and always will be. That's what makes us so uh, incredibly uh, dedicated to the unit and to our jobs because we start off in, in the trenches. That's where we are. That's where, that's where, we're, that's where we're birthed. So I started off as an 0331, and I, I had to basically, you have to pay your dues when I was back in the early 90s. Uh, you can't join the Marine Corps trying to say, well, I'm going to request to be a sniper. You have to start off. You have to be a primary in the infantry. So I had to basically, you know, not sell myself a platoon, but, you know, basically like a, like a new recruit or, or, or basically some, a rookie on the police force, you have to do your time. Well, and you also have to be the best at what you're doing while you're doing your time. Exactly. I mean, you have to be physically fit for this job. I mean, because the the, the gold standard, which is sniper school, uh, is, is arduous uh, throughout the Marine Corps. It doesn't matter where it is. It's but you know what, Thomas? It's not just physically fit. You had to be mentally and emotionally fit throughout this. It was like you're meant, you had to be on top of your game in your mind, in your mental mind. It, it really was a very, um, I think it's very strategic being a sniper. Yes, it is. Well, it's a lot more than what people think. You know, I mean, Hollywood portrays it in movies differently, but it's a whole—it's a whole uh, lifestyle. You have to live and breathe the stuff. And the guys that I, when I became a chief scout sniper, I try to portray that to my men. To be like, this is not just—you know—this is not just uh, a secondary uh, job. This is a very important job, and you have to live and breathe this stuff because it's a very—the—the uh, the roles that you have to perform in combat are are much more simpler than just, just squeezing a trigger. Well, you were in a combat tour. You were in Operation Iraqi Freedom. Uh, Reading your accounts of being there in the Middle East, I was frightened the whole time. I mean, I I don't – how did you overcome the fears? How did you just go into buildings? How did you hide out the way you did? I mean – the, I, the cover of your book is fabulous. With I don't know how you pronounce that word. Is it ghillie suits? When the, is it ghillies or jillies? It's a ghillie suit. Ghillie suit. Uh, and you had to make these yourself so that you basically become invisible. It's like putting on Harry Potter's invisible cloak, but you really are right there. How, uh, how did you feel while you were there? 
Uh, it, it all starts with the right mindset. I mean, you have to do the training. I mean, the, 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 the training that you go through as a scout or a pig, and then you, when you build up and become a sniper or a hog, uh, it's, 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 if, you, if you do it correctly, if you do it repetitiously, we basically live in the field. Even our classes that we, that we our book classes, we be out in the field because that's where your job is both, mostly going to be. So I, I try to get them in the right environment before we went to war by constantly training. And, and establishing that mindset. When we, when we did indoctrinations, when we did screenings, we made sure that we covered the whole gamut that we needed that was passed down to me from my chief scout when I was in, that this is what you need to look for for when you get scouts over to your platoon. Psychological background checks, uh, physical fitness, uh, the right mindset, the, the, the intelligence level, just, just basically your GT score has to be above 100 because some of the things you have to know and present your, your mission planning to a battalion commander in 06 is you, you're out there, you know, giving a mission brief in front of all these officers and the staff and COs. You have to be intelligent. You have to be able to brief that mission if it comes down to it. Well, and you talk about the, the title of your book, The Last Wolf. You compare yourself uh, as being a sniper at, to being a wolf. Explain that to us because it, the pack is everything, and your pack are your fellow Marines that your fellow sna- snipers. Exactly. Well, the wolf uh, is an intriguing creature, and I think uh, civilians can basically relate to that as well. Because um, you know, if you if you look if you think about the wolf, it's it's just a mystifying creature. It's so here's this creature that just basically you know delves into the shadows. It, it, it reappears. It's like sort of magical. And our fascination with the wolf is, is, is inherent because you can see people trying to constantly breed them into these dogs. You know, half breeds of wolves, and and then you you go and, and you see them at the if you see them at the zoo, it, it, the wolf. It just attracts a, a huge audience. Snipers are, are kind of similar. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a profession, it's, a, it's an art, which is very, very mysterious to the regular person. We, we, civilians have a fascination with the art of sniping, and it, it, it basically stems because the job, like I said before, it's a lifestyle. And, and only, only a gifted few that actually go to the school, get the MOS and, and, and scouts that make it to the sniper platoon can really explain it well. And I, and I compare it to the wolf because the pack and the wolf is very tight. And the same thing with the sniper platoon. It's very, very tight platoon because of this process of becoming, you know, a Marine, then you become a, a new Marine, then you go and become a scout or, or a pig in the platoon. It's a constant building process, and it builds your character. And the well, wolf is, is the most uh, unbelievable hunter in the wild, as is the sniper. And that's, what, and that's what your job was, is that you are a hunter. Exactly. You are a hunter of man. And Ernest Hemingway, I mean, he says it best when he says, there is no other hunting like the hunting of armed men, and those who do it and like it never care for anything else thereafter. That is a sniper's creed, basically. Yeah, that was, and you have this quote at the very beginning of your book, which, you know, it, it, it's a haunting, a haunting quote. And I, I find it so fascinating now. I imagine that once you're a Marine, whether you're a retired Marine uh, you know, and not in the force, you're always a Marine at heart, always love it, you always believe in it. But you are now actually saving lives in working in a hospital, being a, a respiration therapist. How does, how does that feel to be, have that life in both worlds? It's a good experience. I think that we all have a particular fate or a destiny in our lives. I, I truly believe that, and I think things happen in my life specifically because that was it was meant to be. And now, experiencing the other side of the coin, my, my wife teases me about it. She used to say, well, my job was, you know, trying to end the respiratory process. Now I'm trying to save it, which is kind of funny. Um, you see a different side of things. I, I mean, I actually get, uh, I get very 
passionate about both jobs. I mean, I still maintain interest in sniping, obviously, but in healthcare now, it's a different type of. You see the families. You see how trauma can can affect a, a, a patient's family's life, and just to know that you're doing a better job. Are you doing a job trying to save a little bit more of that life for these for this patient to help them get back on their feet and get home to their loved ones is, is a very rewarding feeling. It's a different type of feeling, um, and it's it's it, it strikes home. And because you know, as respiratory therapists, you deal with a lot of trauma. Well, uh, and you wrote the book though truly as a dedication to the warriors, to the men that you worked with, and who uh, who are really protecting freedom for all of us. Absolutely. And so this is really an honor to them. And you, and, and to that light, besides what you're doing now, you will always be a Marine. You will always have this passion for being a sniper and for being, a, you know, a, a soldier, a soldier of the Marine Corps. You Absolutely. are the last wolf. Exactly. <laughs> That's it. Well, I want to send people to your website, Thomas, because uh, the book is so fascinating. And for anyone who doesn't understand what a sniper does or would be interested in being a scout a sniper or wants to know more about the Marines or just know more about how life is when you have to be on your game, the website for The Last Wolf is thelastwolf.net. Pick up a copy of the, this book by Thomas Cox, The Last Wolf. Do you want to leave us with a final thought, Thomas? Um, yes, I like to say uh, to all those men and women serving our country out there in harm's way that my heart bleeds for you every day, and I thank God that we have the finest U.S. military. Uh, we have the finest military in the world, and they can keep me safe at night is is just a unbelievable feeling. And I thank you for everything you do for my new uh, new child, Caitlin. Is uh, she's got a chance, and I want I want to thank every one of you to be able to protect us. Well, and thank you for what you did during your service and for your dedication and for writing the book. Thomas Cox, the author of The Last Wolf, and Cox is spelled C-O-X. Thank you, Thomas, for being on Star Style. Be the star you are. Thank you, Cynthia. Now, if you think you have to be a vegetarian or a monk to be a devout Buddhist, think again. You're going to meet author Stephen Asma. He's a meat-eating, swearing, alcohol-drinking philosophy professor. And his new book is Why I Am a Buddhist. I'm Cynthia Bryan. This is Star Style. Be the star you are. We'll be right back. Okay, great. Thank you. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Business Bites. Here's Cynthia Bryan. Do you know who the stars of the business world are? Well, some of the most successful businesses in the world are very small and completely unknown to the general public. Many of these small companies dominate the marketplace and their secret stars. They share some common traits, however, in providing leadership and self-reliance. These companies hire well and they keep a minimum number of employees. They like to have more work than workers. They have a strong vision for what they want to accomplish. They create a company culture that all the employees follow and enforce. They have ambitious goals which keep them on track and they make sure that their goals are realistic and attainable. 
successful stars concentrate on their core strengths and outsource other specialties. They're focused. They practice innovation on a continual basis, and they monitor competition. These star strategies can be applied to any business. If you'll implement them, your company could be one of the next success stories. Remember, you are the star of your own performance. Turn your passions into profits. I'm Cynthia Bryan from Star Style with another business bite. For more information on coaching and consulting, go to star-style.com. Are you living your dreams? Want to create a life you love but don't know how to begin? Lifestyle coach and personal growth expert Cynthia Bryan has jump-started the lives and careers of clients for over two decades with her signature Star Style consultations with personalized sessions by phone or in person. You'll turn your passions into profits. Visit www.cynthiabryan.com or call 925-377-STAR. That's cynthiabryan.com or call 925-377-7888. Cynthia Bryan is your guide on the side. www.cynthiabryan.com You can be the star you are. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel where the world comes to listen and talk. You're listening to Star Style. Be the star you are with hosts Cynthia Bryan and Heather Brittany. Be the star you are is a 501c3 nonprofit corporation to improve literacy and positive media. All contributions and donations are tax deductible. To comment on today's show, please call in toll free at 1-866-613-1612. That's 1-866-613-1612. Or send an email to info at be the star you are.org. Now back to Star Style, Be the Star You Are, with the Oprah of the Airwaves, Cynthia Bryan. Be the star you are. Well, thank you for Light staying with us here on Star Style, Be the Star You Are. Really appreciate having you as part of our listening audience. Now, over the years, many people have asked me if I was a Buddhist, a suggestion that always surprises me because... Not only am I Roman Catholic, but I eat meat, I drink wine, I live by the rules of smile, have fun, be wild and crazy. But now I've read this new book by Stephen Asmus that is called Why I Am a Buddhist. And who knows, maybe I am one. Well, welcome, Stephen, to Be the Star You Are. Hi, thanks for having me. I really loved your book. There's no-nonsense Buddhism with red meat and whiskey. (laughs) It's a a great great come on here. Now, I wanted to start off with, uh, you know, Buddhism might have gotten a bit of a bad rap because of all of us here in California. In fact, you actually talked about how we have to get more Chicago Buddhism going than less California. Tell us what you mean by that. Yeah, no, no offense to Californians. Uh, I have family in California, and I certainly don't want to make enemies in California. But I do think um, Buddhism has been a, sort of linked with a kind of fuzzy New Age spiritualism. And there's a lot of good in that movement, for sure. But there's also other aspects of Buddhism, sort of tougher, uh, more down-to-earth, more commonsensical. And that's why I call that a kind of Chicago Buddhism. And uh, that's why the subtitle of the book is... Uh, you can, you know, Buddhism with uh, red meat and whiskey. You, you don't have to say no to the pleasures of life, and you don't have to sort of get into crystals and spoon 
mind-bending and really, really mystical stuff either. There's a different, there's sort of a more solid form of Buddhism, that, and that's what I'm trying to study in the book. Well, and also, you know, you make the point you don't have to be in a monastery, you don't have to become a monk, you don't have to shave your head. You really, it's, it's really a way of living and thinking it's more of a philosophy, which that gets, that gets me to the next point as People who don't know much about religion or philosophy, they lump Buddhism in with Hinduism, Taoism, or other Eastern beliefs. But what really is your definition of Buddhism, and what do you think makes it so different and really very easy to assimilate into all of our lives? Because it, it's a very practical, practical way of being. Yeah, that's right. Uh, there is, a, a, I think, a kind of a view of Buddhism in the popular culture that, you know, you have to shave your head and live in a cave and wear robes. And um, But you're right. Uh, the Buddha was trying to speak to people like you and I who are, you know, living in families and working jobs and just um, trying to get through life and increase happiness and uh, reduce suffering as much as possible. And so the message is quite practical. It, it's saying... Um, that, that we all suffer and we all have disappointments in life, but the main way to sort of um, overcome these is by training our minds and um, in particular training our cravings, trying to sort of discipline our cravings and put a, put a leash on some of our desires. And once we put a leash on some of our desires, we find that life becomes more uh, rich and uh, rewarding and fulfilling. Let's talk about Buddhism and parenting. Uh, I got a lot of chuckles about of you being the uh, the Mr. Mom <laughs> and raising your son and having to do all these things and just wondering, oh my gosh, how can I you know practice what I preach and have this little this little uh, child that seems destined for death. <laughs> yeah, he. I love my son more than uh, life itself, but he's a little monster, and uh, it makes it very hard to sort of sit in contemplation and meditate on my breathing. You know, the, the idea of Buddhism as this sort of quiet serenity, uh, you know, having kids makes this almost impossible. And uh, the good news, though, is that the Buddha said, well, Look, there is a kind of meditation where you separate yourself away from other people and you focus your mind, but there's another form of meditation which is called uh, mindfulness. And the Buddha said this form of meditation is something you can do every day in the sort of regular activities of the day, whether it's uh, parenting or working your job. Um, and it's just bringing your mind into the present moment as much as possible and trying to be as present in this moment as you can. And that can be done even during like these crazy, uh, I described some of the harried and frazzled moments of being a parent. And Buddhism says, you know, there's a, there's a way to approach this stuff that can at least um, help you not get too depressed or too obsessed or too worried. That's really the goal is to try to keep uh, down the middle path. Well, I want to tell you that I identified with you and your son because I also had a son that was very rambunctious, very much like uh, your son who was always jumping off of things and flying and diving and, and ending up in the emergency room more than I could imagine. <laughs> I was always afraid somebody was going to say, oh, my gosh, are you abusing your kids? There were so many stitches. I think it's, you said it very well in your book, uh, Why I'm a Buddhist. It's boys. They yeah. have a lot of energy. I'm afraid it is. <laughs> yeah, hopefully they'll get a little bit of the, the Buddhist thinking in it. Now, something that, that um, I felt was really important is when you were talking about bullies and really how just the, the Buddhist way of 
thinking things through and standing up for yourself could help so much. And, and, you know, we see a lot of this today, not only in the schools with bullies, but bullies in the workplace. And you talked about when you were younger, you had a, a coworker that would bully you kind of into every kind of manipulative right. activity until you finally just said, hey, I don't care what other yeah. people think about me. I am who I am. Could you just address that a bit? I thought this was a powerful chapter. Well, um, I think that's right. The, the Buddha says that uh, it, what you have to do is understand the psychology of other people and your own psychology better. That's really the goal of Buddhism, and that's why psychologists have been very interested in Buddhism for the last probably 40 years. And I think that's right. You, you have to try to understand, okay, what's motivating this person, in this case a bully, who's constantly uh, nagging me, either, either physically abusive or mentally and verbally abusive. And you, you have to sort of understand what's driving this anger and hostility. And you don't have to sort of accept it and respond to it with a hug, but once you understand where it's coming from, you can detach from the injury uh, a little better, and then you can train your own mind so that it is better able to handle this kind of experience in the future. And what I, I tell this story about... Um, one of the things that a bully oftentimes does is they they figure out where what you're worried about and and how your sort of what your anxieties and fears are and then they play to those but you can imagine if you if you're no longer afraid of these things the bully no longer has any sort of handle on you to shake you up and make you do things and so it's a way of like maturing yourself and accepting um, you know, your own, like you said, your own character, your own value. And this basically robs the bully of any kind of power over you. And it's a, it's a really liberating experience. Well, and it's something that I, I feel that we can all benefit from learning. We're talking with author and philosophy professor Stephen Asma, and his uh, book is Why I Am a Buddhist, No-Nonsense Buddhism with Red Meat and Whiskey. Uh, another thing, you in your book, you go through your own journey in finding Buddhism. And you experimented with a lot of different uh, thought processes, faiths, religions, uh, hallucinogenics, etc. And you you talk at great length about the Beat Generation and uh, you know Kerouac and uh, the different author Jack Kerouac and right. the different authors and artists. Let's talk about that a bit. Was were they really, you know, was the Buddha really wearing berets, or was <laughs> it just another, you know, another way that Americans were grasping with another uh, belief system? Yeah, I think it, it it's true that uh, in the 1950s, the, the some of the people you mentioned, like Jack Kerouac and Allen Ginsberg and the hipsters, you know, they really got attracted to Buddhism because they saw it as an alternative. Uh, to the traditional monotheistic religions, you know, that we have in the West. And um, I think that that also then changed into the 60s, into the hippie movement, uh, and then uh, down to the present, into the New Age movement. But I think what they recognized in Buddhism, and that still is something uh, people gravitate to, to, is the, the way in which Buddhism um, is really interested in the arts, and considers the arts in many ways, whether it be music or uh, drawing or calligraphy or crafting, whatever it is, you know, the Zen Buddhism is fascinated by the arts, poetry, and it, it basically says in the artistic process, whether you're sort of enjoying this or whether you're making it, you're having a really unique psychological experience. It's different from the regular everyday kind of 
you know, driving my car down the street. And that view, that experience came to be called sort of transcendental experience. And so people, I think artists were always attracted to it and had this sort of bohemian dimension to it as well. And I think that's still true. Well, and we all, we, we, most of us want to transcend something. Right, exactly. So, but but where, where Buddhism really makes a, uh, a turn, I think, away from other ways of thinking, and especially other religions, is its connection with science. Mm-hmm. Now, that, to me, is really important. You can be a scientist and you can be a Buddhist. Whereas, you know, so many people, for example, you talked about Catholicism, where, you know, you're supposed to believe in Adam and Eve and not the evolutionary theory. But Buddhism doesn't have this. Buddhism and scientific uh, data go hand in hand. Yeah, I, I was a raised Catholic myself, and I still have a deep respect for Catholicism. But you're right, uh, in in Buddhism... Uh, Buddhists are not particularly interested in God, which is sort of a weird thing to hear, uh, because you'd think, well, all religions have some interest in God, and yet Buddhism is not interested in God, it's not very interested in the the soul, in fact, it's kind of doubtful about these things. Yeah, in fact, you actually say in your book, Buddhism doesn't really even believe in a soul, actually. That's right, that's right. it's not part of the belief system. Correct. The Buddha thinks that the idea of the soul is very attractive, but it doesn't really help us reduce suffering in the here and now. It tends to train our eye too far in the distance, like I'm going to, you know, I'm gonna, he was thinking about Hinduism, so he's thinking, well, everybody wants to be reborn into a better life, but even if you're Christian, you might be thinking, well, I want to go to heaven. And what the Buddha is saying is, yeah, but look around in the here and now, and where can you be of, of best service here and now? So for those reasons, he was a little hostile to the idea of the soul. You know, and I really, I really appreciated that because that was an aspect I really hadn't looked into, and I liked living in the here and now. I believe that now is really all we have. I mean, and whatever we get later on, it's a bonus. Right. But we got to live for now, and I, that is something that has always um, bothered me, perhaps about uh, Hinduism, where you know they think that if, if that you're going to go to this wonderful nirvana with the 72 or 74 or however many virgins there's going to be. Let's live for now. But Buddhism gets lumped together with Hinduism a lot. Yeah, it does get lumped together with Hinduism frequently, um, and it sounds like there's a little sort of confusion there with Hinduism and uh, Islam as I mean, well. Not and, Hinduism, Islam, I meant, excuse yeah. me. And, but uh, these groupings, uh, I think it, it is good, I think, if we sort of study some of these and look at, um, there's, there's always a kind of crazy version of every religion and a more sane version. And I do think, um, you know, Buddhism also is just like this, too. There's some really crazy and, and wacky stuff. There's also a very deep and sane version. And I think people tend to look at Eastern religions as all being sort of the same, and in fact, quite different. I think Hinduism and Buddhism are very different, just like Judaism and Christianity are different. Uh, they, they all share some interest in the in the, basically how can we live a moral, more a uh, better moral life, and how can we increase compassion? And those are the aspects that I think we should sort of celebrate and emphasize. Well, also the aspect that I think is is uh, in all of the different religions is basically the golden rule. Treat each other as you would like to be treated. It's, you know, love thy neighbor as thyself. Right. Yeah, there's a, uh, the golden rule, uh, of course we have a long uh, tradition of this in the West, 
but the Confucians, uh, you know, six centuries before the time of Christ, were also giving a, a sort of version of the golden rule. So it seems to be something fairly universal about religions, East and West. Well, and and then I think Buddhism, though, just takes it, you know, a tiny bit further as far as what, if we live in the now and we live a good life, then that is a reward in itself. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. You, you, you basically don't look to the external world for and sort of think of yourself as a victim. You think of yourself as somebody who's in control of your emotions. Maybe you're angry a lot, maybe you're depressed, maybe you're sad. The Buddha says the, the causes of that are inside you. And with proper training and discipline and practice, you can actually enrich your life just by working on your own psychology. Yeah, and that's what I, be- I really believe that that is the truth, too. We have to be our best self, our only self, and, and be true to that. Well, let's give out your website, Stephen. It's a wonderful book, and if anyone is interested in really knowing about uh, Buddhism and how you can incorporate it into your own life and live the, the great uh, precepts and, and beliefs. Go to stephenasma.com. That's S-T-E-P-H-E-N-A-S-M-A.com. Would you wrap it up for us, Stephen? Just give us a, you know, a, a, a final blurb of why I am a Buddhist. Well, I... I guess uh, Buddhism has been extremely helpful to me, um, a guy living in Chicago, uh, and I think that uh, Buddhism still can speak to Americans, especially in our culture, that's uh, so commercial and is really a great form of uh, spirituality. Well, thank you so much for sharing your ideas on Star Style. Be the star you are, stephenasma.com, the book Why I Am a Buddhist. Thank you, Stephen, for joining me here. Thanks so much. It's been my pleasure. And thank you, all of you, for being great listeners every week when we come to broadcast Star Style, Be the Star You Are, and bring these incredible authors and experts. Stay tuned next week when we'll be here again, and Heather Brittany will be back. And until we party, I am Cynthia Bryan. This is Star Style, Be the Star You Are. Go out in the world and be the star you are. Be the star you are.org. We'll talk next week. Thanks for joining me. Thanks again for listening to Star Style, Be the Star You Are. For more information about Be the Star You Are Nonprofit Corporation, please visit BeTheStarYouAre.org. That's BeTheStarYouAre.org. Join Cynthia Bryan and Heather Brittany again next Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, here on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Remember, to be a leader, you must be a reader. Enjoy a stellar week. You're a seeker, a dreamer, with courage to...